Thank you, Austin, for these warm words of welcome. As you can hear, I'm from South Texas, and um, that's uh, Scotland, uh, by the way, and uh, very glad to be with you here today. It really is a wee bit of a pinch-me moment for me, because when I was pastoring in Scotland, I would often uh, listen to sermons from Grace I'd especially tune in for shepherds' conference addresses. I would often uh, sort of look on enviously when some Scottish pastors went over to here to attend these conferences, never ever imagining I would be here, far less actually having an opportunity to uh, speak. So it really is a, a tremendous humbling privilege to be with you here today, and I thank you for it. We'd like to begin, though, by reading together in God's Word in the book of Psalms and Psalm 46. Psalm 46, we'll read the the whole psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come. Behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. We want to really make that verse 10 a bit of a banner verse for this morning. Be still and know that I am God. In 2011, I found myself in hospital Uh, I had been sitting at home and I felt chest pain go across my body, up into my neck with a sense of choking, suffocation, felt very hot, pulse was racing, a bit confused and disoriented. And uh, being the man that I was, I thought, I'll just keep this to myself. (laughs) And unfortunately, my wife's a medical doctor. And uh, she looked across the room and saw 
someone that did not look like her husband at that moment. And she said, David, what's wrong? And I said, okay, I think I might be having a heart attack. Um, It's not as bad as I thought it would be having a heart attack, but there's something weird going on here. So she went into ER mode and did all the usual uh, tests of vitals and really couldn't find too much wrong. And by that time, the, the feeling of pressure, suffocation was passing. And she said, we'll need to go to ER anyway. I said, no, 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 we're fine. You know, that's just, it's just passed. I don't know what that was. Let's just save ourselves a thousand bucks and carry on. And she said, no, we're going. And you know, well, we went backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards until eventually I said, okay, I'll do it for you. And she took me to ER. They did tests in the local hospital. Couldn't really find anything, EKG, all that, but doctor was a bit uncertain, so he said, I'd like you to go to the big general hospital. Went down there, again, very reluctantly, arguing all the way. And eventually, my wife sort of pushed me in the door, and they did some tests. And again, nothing really showing up. Until eventually, I said, I actually have a, have a pain in the back of my calf here. And the doctor said, have you, have you traveled recently? And I said, well, yeah, I I traveled to Canada and back. And um, it's about a six-hour journey. And I I didn't stop. I was in a rush. I didn't have any time to stop for a rest or anything. And I actually felt it when I got out of the car in Canada. And I just thought, well, it's a strained muscle. I do a wee bit of taekwondo. And uh, just persevered through the weekend. I was preaching in a Baptist church there. It's getting worse and worse. Jumped in the car Monday morning, drove all the way back to Grand Rapids. By the time I got to Grand Rapids, I could hardly walk, but it was just muscular. So I just kept on going. And it'd been a very busy period. And uh, that night, uh, that was sort of my pause, take stock, um, reset, you might say, my life and try and calm things down. And it was when I was sitting on that chair, uh, ready to start my calm down, that this happened to me. And I had my plans, God had his plans, and I end up in hospital. And within about an hour of talking to the doctor about this calf problem, I'd gone through a CT scan and other things, and it transpired I had a deep vein thrombosis in the back of my leg, which had uh, broken off and spread into my lungs, a pulmonary embolism. In fact, I had multiple blood clots in both lungs. And uh, it's a very common way to die, especially if you don't get treatment quickly. Thank you, wife. And (laughs) yet even there in hospital, you know, they were still not facing reality until I said, I'm just going to the restroom. And the doctor said, you're going nowhere. You've got a life-threatening condition and we can't risk you moving in case something else breaks off and, and blocks an artery or something like that. So that, that sort of began to sober me up a bit, make me face reality. By that time, it's the middle of the night, my wife had gone home. I called her and I said, Shona, um, I've just been told, I told her, and she was, her reaction told me too, this is very serious. And I was, okay, this could be it. I'm, what, 40... 46-ish, is this it? Four kids at home, maybe this is eternity. Are you ready? And 
I could say spiritually, I didn't have a fear by God's grace. I thought a lot about the cross, the atonement of Christ, and it was totally satisfying, totally calming. It took away all fear of going to face God, not because of anything I'd done or been, but just the sufficiency of Christ, and the suitability of Christ for a sinner. It was wonderfully calming, pacifying. I was worried about my family. I couldn't stop worrying about them, how they were going to cope without me. And it's a strange thing. We, we can often trust in God for our salvation, but when it comes to providence, that's where unbelief can often come in. That's where it was with me. So I ended up in hospital for a couple of days as I, they thinned my blood and worked on stopping these clots breaking off. And it was really the first time in many years where I had been forced to stop and pause and take stock. And pretty soon, almost immediately, I, I began to realize it was the voice of God. It was God saying, be still and know that I am God. And I was looking back over my life of ministry and it was all good. It was all good stuff. It was all, you know, teaching, preaching, writing, lecturing, pastoring, counseling. It was all good. I was still doing my Bible reading and prayer, but mechanically, I would say, routinely, not really heartily, not really communing. And I really felt strongly God was saying, David, you know, yes, you've got sermons and writing and pastoring and all that, but my son, give me your heart. That's what I want, your heart. I want you, I want you to be still and know that I am God. It was really, if I could sum it up in a, in a short phrase, it's ministry without spirituality. And so a large number of things began to change in my life as I tried to re evaluate and, and repent and, and build more peace and rest and communion into my life. And it lasted for quite a while. But within a year or so, I was back to my defaults. And we all have these, you know, the way we're wired or the way we've been raised or, or just the practices and habits we've got into in our lives. It's extremely hard to break long term. And that was the case for me. And so two years later, what happens? I end up in hospital again with more blood clots in my lungs. And the phrase came to me, you know, David, three strikes and you're out. You have to fix this once and for all. And I, I mean, I, I had taken it seriously, but again, just, I suppose, pride and bad habits, um, independence, self-sufficiency, all these things were just a fatal recipe that dragged me back into these stressful, burnout kind of lifestyle. And I began to write about it, began to talk about it, and tried to be open and honest and transparent, writing my blog and speaking at ministers' conferences. And, and a lot of pastors began to come to me for counseling, like, you know, counselor, heal yourself, I'm sort of saying to myself, but the same patterns were coming. And then it wasn't just pastors, it was men in general. 
And the words that kept coming up in all these conversations were words like exhausted, burned out, overwhelmed, anxious, worried, depressed, joyless, um, angry, um, cold spiritually, uh, prayerless, uh, angry with my family, marriage sort of a bit cold, distant, very similar issues. And, And these were all good men, Christian men. And trying to look at my own life and and trying to look at theirs, I came to this conclusion that there was a deficit of grace in our lives. A deficit of grace. Now, don't get me wrong. We all believed in grace. Uh, We were all, many of us, preachers of the doctrines of grace. We were were five-point men. We were five-sola men. We were... You know, we would stand up for, for the, the doctrines of grace. And yet, there was a deficit of grace. There was a disconnect between doctrinal grace and living by grace. And as I tried to think about myself and, and the lives of the men that I was increasingly involved in, began to see five particular areas where these deficits were were evident. Five disconnects between theological grace and you might say practical grace or believing in grace and living out grace. And I'd like to summarize these five areas because this isn't just a man problem. This This is a woman problem too. And it's not just a, a middle age problem, it's, it's a young person problem as well. And, and it's not just middle class, it's, it's, it's the full range. When you, you look at the statistics for our society, at every age group, the rates of uh, anxiety, depression, uh, burnout, overwhelm, uh, quitting, all of these things are soaring. And I really believe... As Christians, we have tremendous resources to address this in ourselves and to help others similarly if we can really get this. So I want to, I want to try and present these five deficits or disconnects using an illustration, a picture of five tanks. Like you, can, you can view them maybe as gas tanks, fuel tanks. And I, I really view these as largely unused fuel tanks, five fuel tanks of grace that we are not tapping into in order to fuel our lives. And and the first tank is the tank of thanksgiving. The tank of thanksgiving. So if if I was to ask you, as I ask men that I work with, what motivates you? What would you answer? Like, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What, what drives you? What energizes you? What would be your answer? If you, if you were to go down to a, a factory production line and, and ask people there, uh, you, you'd get a range of answers. You would, you would find there, maybe say, we would call a Mr. Dollar. And he's motivated by money, getting more money. 
And then you've got maybe Mrs. Ambition there, and she's motivated by promotion. How, how can I get on? And, and then there's, there's Mr. Pleaser, and he's motivated by pleasing others, his boss or, or his parents or, or society in general. And, and then you've got Mrs. Self-satisfaction. She's, she's motivated just by getting satisfaction and happiness out of her job. And, and if, if these are the motivations, then these are inevitable. These will inevitably result in stress, anxiety, um, overwork, and burnout. Uh, but if you're to go back to that assembly line and find Mrs. Grace, let's call her. And you're to ask her, what motivates you here at this conveyor belt? She would say, I work here out of love for God in Christ and out of gratitude for what God in Christ has done for me. And, and that gratitude for what God has done for me in Christ motivates me and makes me ask, how can I serve God and others in this role, in this place. Now, all five of these people are doing exactly the same work and they look exactly the same on the outside. You wouldn't be able to really differentiate them as they work at this uh, production line. But if you were to look inside them, the insides look very different. Uh, the, the first four uh, the insides of them are, are literally burning. It's, it's not coincidence that it's called burn out. Because when grace is not fueling you from the inside out, you will be burning from the inside out. If you're to cut open people who are suffering with stress, you would find extremely high levels of inflammation, a redness in their whole system, a heat, as it were, in their whole bodily systems. And yet, if you're to cut open Mrs. Grace, you'd find a very different inside. You would find a, a calm, you would find a peace, you would find a pace that was very calming and relaxing. And so, we ask again, what motivates you? If, if you are motivated by grace, you can look exactly the same, even in ministry. You can, have, you can have two pastors doing exactly the same work, preaching maybe even exactly the same amount of sermons. But if you're doing it for money or ambition or pleasing others or self-satisfaction, then you're going to be very different on the inside compared to the person who works by grace, out of grace, because of thanksgiving, because of gratitude for what God has done for them in Christ changes the whole outlook, changes the whole mind, the whole body, the whole soul, changes the whole person. And I would suggest to you this is a, a largely untapped tank in many of our lives that we don't deliberately connect with this every day and, and seek to be filled with thanksgiving and gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. The second tank I'd like to connect you with is the tank of acceptance. 
acceptance. So I, I will ask men uh, when they come to me for counselling, what satisfies you? What makes you look at the day and say, I had a good day. That day went really well. Uh, you know, as, you, as you put your head in the pillow, you know, what, what is it that makes you happy looking back on your day? And for many of them, they'll say, uh, when the day goes perfectly, when everything just goes as it should, when I succeed in my task, when I complete my to-dos, or when, when the sermon is perfect, or my work just goes flawlessly. And they're really basically saying they are motivated, they are, they are satisfied with perfection. And that, that's their aim, perfection in themselves, perfection in people around about them. And what's the result of that? Well, you very rarely have such a day, if ever, do you? And therefore, the result of living to be perfect or living so that everything is perfect all around you is a life of constant frustration. And bringing legalistic perfectionism into your workplace, into your marriage, into your relationships is a recipe for stress, indeed disaster, because it results in a ton of self-criticism and other criticism, and even of God criticism. So Mr. and Mrs. Perfectionist are really miserable people. They've got big holes in their tanks. Because every time something goes wrong, or they don't quite meet the mark, or their wife, or their husband, or their children, or their employees, or employer, or their church, or God doesn't meet their standard, then it's just fuel to the fire. Of, of stress and frustration and anger and dissatisfaction. But if someone is motivated by grace, so someone, you ask, you ask Mrs. Grace, what satisfies you? What, what makes you feel that was a good day? Do you know what she'll say? She'll say that the fact that no matter how this day goes or how this day went, I am accepted by God in Christ as perfect. Now that's, that's perfectionism that we want. Mrs. Grace brings all her imperfections to a perfect God and has all her imperfections forgiven by God perfectly and the perfection of Christ accounted as hers. That's acceptance. Acceptance with God is the foundation for self-acceptance. Acceptance with God is the foundation for accepting flaws and failures in others as well. Because it's recognizing that no matter how hard we try, we will never meet that standard. We will never find that place of eventually I've got there. Mrs. Grace and Mr. Grace, they basically say, I'm no longer trying to suffer and serve and sacrifice my way into acceptance with God because Christ has suffered and served and sacrificed 
to make me accepted with God. And with that, I face the day in a very different way. I don't need to be perfect. And I can look back on every day, even the most disastrous day, even the days where I failed dismally and terribly, and say, I am perfect in Christ. God's not there keeping score and saying, you know, right, wrong, right, wrong, 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 right, right. No, he looks on me and says, you are right in my sight. And, and it's, we use the word acceptance here because that's a sort of theological term, but it's not strong enough. You know, you might say to somebody, well, I accept that. And it's a, it almost sounds like grudging, doesn't it? It's like, well, I mean, I'll accept that. And it's, you know, you're squeezing yourself to do it. You're forcing yourself. You're, okay, I'm reluctant, but okay, let, let's do it. That is not the way God accepts us. He accepts us with joy, with enthusiasm with excitement, with his whole heart. Indeed, in Zephaniah, we're told that God sings over his people and he takes pleasure in them to the same degree that a bridegroom does in his bride on their wedding day. That's the kind of acceptance that God gives us. Warm, hearty, loving, embrace in Christ a joy in us if we're God's people. And that, that changes the whole way you live, you minister, you get up in the morning, you go to bed at night. If we could tap into that tank of acceptance by grace, then again, we will, we will be different on the inside. We will think differently. We will feel differently. We will view ourselves differently. We will view our world differently acceptance. The third tank I'd like you to connect with is the tank of multiplication. The tank of multiplication. So I will ask pastors, it's mainly pastors I work with, um, how many hours do you work in the week? And oftentimes they won't quite tell the truth. And almost always underestimate until we actually, okay, let's next week, let's let come back to me with the reality. And so we force them to take a note in real time. And it's sometimes up at you know, 70, 80, maybe even plus hours a week. And, uh, and I'll ask them, so what do you think about that? You know, how, how, how do you view that? And, and they'll, they'll say things like, well, well obviously, I mean, it's, it's, it's the Lord's work and, and we have to work hard and, you know, I've got to give myself, uh, you know, fully to it. And, um, you know, if, if I don't do it, then, you know, no one else will do it. And, and there, are, there are souls to be saved. I mean, how can I, how can I, how can I rest? How can I, how can I even, you know, do hobbies or, or exercise when there are, there are souls perishing and, you know, so I have to, I've got to use you know, every hour, every minute that I can. So, uh, these are wonderful motivations, aren't they? You know, it's, it's beautiful zeal in a way. 
But it's theologically wrong. Because basically, it's rewriting a verse of Scripture. Practically. It would never say they're doing it, but practically they are. And the, and the verse they're rewriting goes like this. One, I plant, I water, and I give the increase. Everything depends on my time served and my effort and my muscle and my input. And have, they've completely forgotten about the multiplying effect of God's blessing and effectively saying, my hours and my muscle or my minutes and my muscle will produce more than God's multiplication. Now, that's not an excuse for laziness. You can't then, okay, I'll just sit back, put my feet up and, you know, let God, no, we've still got a soul and we've still got a water. But it's God that does the multiplying. It's God that does the increasing. And so you go back to that assembly line and, and you've got all these people and they're working overtime, they're working their 70, 80 hours a week, they're squeezing out every minute they can. And, and then you go to Mr. and Mrs. Grace. What do they do? They, they knock off at 40 hours a week or 45 hours a week. They work, you know, about seven, eight, maybe nine hours, some days. Maybe when there's a push, they do a wee bit extra, but not as a lifestyle. And, and, but, and they go home prayerfully. They go home seeking God's blessing on their work. And, and you can apply this to every area of life, ministry, of course, but even parenting, um, serving in any form. Sometimes, you know, again, there can be lots and lots of serving, but very little praying. And effectively, we're, we're doing the same thing. We're, we're saying, you know, God can't do this without my minutes and my muscle. Whereas we're truly grace-based, we really believe, yes, we do work, we sow and we water, and then we stop, and then we look to heaven to multiply and increase and do what we cannot do, never will be able to do, that God alone can do. That changes the way we, we look at our lives, we look at our service, we look at our parenting, we look at everything in our lives. The fourth tank is the tank of release, release. Again, I'll, I'll ask people, what are you responsible for? What are you responsible for? And, and then a big list will come and effectively they're saying, I'm responsible for everything. And, and these are people who believe in sovereign grace. But effectively, they're saying, I'm sovereign. And grace belongs to salvation, not any other domain of life. And you might call this person Mr. Controller, uh, Mr. Sovereign, Mr. King. They, they believe that they really are in control. They really are in charge. It really does all depend upon them. But you go to Mr. and Mrs. Grace 
And, and they say God is sovereign in the nuts and bolts of life. Not just in salvation, but in, in, this, in the minutiae, in the small things as well as the big things. God is in control. I'm releasing that control to him, who, to whom it belongs. You spend your life trying to be in charge, trying to control, trying to be sovereign. That's a recipe for burnout for stress, for anxiety, for worry, and eventually depression. It can't be done. It's a pointless exercise. And, and so, the yes, we take responsibility for what we're responsible for, but it gets to the point where we release it to God. We do what we can, parenting-wise, for example. But it, there comes a point where we say, God, over to you. I release this. I give it over. And we, we try and solve our problems in life. Yes, we take that responsibility. But again, it gets to a point where we say, I release it. I give it over. And that's incredibly freeing and relieving and, and pacifying. When you tap into that large, deep tank of God's sovereignty in everyday practical life, that changes you inside and out. The fifth tank is the tank of gifts. Gifts. And I don't here mean spiritual gifts. I mean um, the more physical gifts. The gifts that God gives us really in the physical realm. And I'll, again, I'll ask men, how do you view yourself? What's the first word that comes to your mind when you think about yourself? And especially pastors will say something like this, a servant or, or a giver. I'm a very giving person. I live to give. Again, these are beautiful, scriptural, biblical concepts in second place but not in first place. Because if we really believe in grace, the first word that should come to mind is, I'm a receiver. I'm a taker. No, I'm a giver. I am served before I serve. And again, this, this changes the way that we look at God's gift how he, as it were, serves us in our humanity. If, if you again go to uh, that, that assembly line, uh, you, you've got all these people and they look at God's gifts of things like sleep, good sleep, um, a, a weekly day of rest, exercise, recreation, recreation, um, friendship, family, fellowship with God's people, and they say, no thanks. I, I don't need these things. These, these are they're gifts that I'm going to just turn my back on. I, I know, yeah, I mean, I've heard God, God made all these things because he knew we were human and physical and emotional beings that needed refreshed and renewed, but that's for weak people. I don't need it. Whereas you go to Mr. and Mrs. Grace and, and they look at these things. Yes, I get to sleep. 
in seven, eight hours a night. Yes, I get a day off every week to rest and renew and refresh myself. Yes, I'm allowed to exercise with a good conscience and enjoy recreation. And they're basically saying, I want to be a giver, but I've got to receive first of all. And unless I'm receiving, I'm not going to be giving for very long without running out and running down and maybe even running away. And so there's this great big tank of God's good gifts just waiting for us to tap into, to connect with, and to receive for our renewal and refreshment. And yet, how often we say, no, not for me. I don't need it. That's for other people. Keep that. I'm just going to be a giver, giver, giver. Well, if, if you look at these tanks and, and say no thanks, then you will run out of gas. You'll run out of fuel because all, all the events of life are basically, they, they put holes in your tank and you will run out. You will be on fumes. And and you know what happens to, to vehicles that, that run out of gas? You know, it does damage them to some degree, even though they can get filled up again. So this is something to, to work at preventively, preemptively, as well as in terms of reversing and, and healing and restoring. And so so the, the grace-paced life is a grace fueled life. What you put in your tank will determine how well you run and how far you run. And here God has provided you with five big, generous tanks of loving gifts for you to receive. And so the grace-paced life taps into the thank you tank and lives saying, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. The grace-paced life taps into the accepted tank and says continually, I'm accepted, I'm accepted, I'm accepted. The grace-paced life taps into the multiply tank and, and lives and eats and breathes, Lord, multiply, multiply, multiply. The grace-paced life taps into the release tank and says, release, release, release. I'm no longer going to be a controller. And the grace-paced life taps into the gifts tank and says, receive, receive, receive. Before I can even begin to think of give, give, give. So, we believe in the doctrines of grace. Do we believe in the practice of grace? Do the doctrines of grace come into our lives in a practical way? Is our life grace-fueled and therefore grace-paced? And therefore, grace glorifying and God glorifying ultimately too. 
I can't say I've figured all this out. I wrote the book. I still have to live it out. We all have our defaults that are extremely hard to overcome. It's a lifelong battle. It's not, okay, today I'll tap into these tanks and and melt be me. No, it's a daily battle. I, I need these tanks every single day of life, every moment of life, if I'm really to live by grace. And, and you do too. And we all, we all have our struggles in different areas. Uh, maybe some of us are connected to one or two of these tanks. Well, add the others. Uh, together they make a premium fuel that will, that will get us through this life joyfully, dependently, and in a God-honoring way. So I think we have some time for, for questions. Uh, very happy to try and answer them. Or if you have any comments that you have, we'd be glad to hear them and respond to them. Yeah. Yeah. So the question was, any advice for bringing this to friends and loved ones who are at risk of burning themselves out? Um, I would love to be a wee bit more optimistic here. But the reality is most people don't take action until they hit the buffers to some degree or other, because we all think we're the exception, right? Um, Having said that, I think if we can try and bring, if it's a Christian family member, if we can try and bring a theological basis to it, because I think a lot of this is based on a false theology, a false view of our humanity, a wrong anthropology, basically, that that tries to live as a disembodied spirit. And and so if it's someone with a Christian heart and mind, then I think we can can talk at that fundamental level. I think we can bring the example of Christ as well, who lived in this earth. And as far as we can tell, if if you look at his life, he, he wasn't rushed. People tried to rush him at times. But he didn't rush. He delayed at times. He kept people waiting. He said no to people. Um, He took rest, sleep, slept even in a boat in the midst of a storm. I mean, how pastoral was that? And yet he, he lived perfectly. There was no sin of omission even there. He was releasing, as it were, control to, to, to his father in heaven. So he could say, oh, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? Um, and I was reading recently um, about uh, somebody, somebody tried to put together basically a, a geography of Christ's life, you know, where, where he moved and how long it took. And, and it would appear that he spent, I don't know if it was a majority, but a large part of his life was spent walking in the countryside with his disciples. Uh, so he's getting exercise. He's in the fresh air. He's enjoying nature. He's got his friends with him. And I was in Israel for the first time just a, a year or two ago. And 
I was just stunned when you actually you look at the distances they covered walking. And, and it, it really does look like it was a very large, yes, there were moments of intensity for sure and of, of real draining self-sacrifice for sure. There were, but there were also large parts of his life that seemed to be much more leisurely and slow-paced and you know, listening and walking and enjoying God's creation. I mean, you can tell from his illustrations, he was extremely observant of nature. So again, I think maybe false views even of Christ in, in a large part of his life. So things like that, maybe we can take to them. And I think you can take to them science as well. You know, one thing that I think even high-tech corporations are coming to terms with is they are losing a ton of productivity uh, by burning out employees and overworking. And, and a lot of the science is even showing the, the actual physical and emotional benefits of, a, of, a, of less working hours and slower-paced working. So, but sometimes it takes a crash, I'm afraid. Yeah. So it's the whole concept of receiving. It's kind of the most foreign, you know, as, a, as Americans, we're, we're go-getters, pull ourselves up yep. on our own bootstraps. You want something, go get it. And even when you're... Um, investing yourself in scriptures you're a miner you're mining right, the debt right. so i mean you're working you're working that was probably the most foreign concept okay brought. yeah i know i'm i'm fighting big strong cultural currents here i mean in some way it's what's made america great in a way isn't it this this go-getting this energy this dynamism and and we don't want to lose that either it's more about what fuels it uh, rather than it, it changes dramatically the, the outward. So you take that reading from Scripture. You know, you can have two men reading the Bible right beside one another, but one is, you know, drinking in and soaking in it and receiving God's grace through it. And the other is like, okay, I've got to learn more. I've got to memorize more. I've got to read all these chapters. And, you know, it's a very different internal that's going on and it looks very different and it has a very different effect even on the body and the mind one is a very restful and renewing activity and the other is a very restful and a very stressed and exhausting activity so it comes into every area really i think ministers are especially susceptible here that's why it's so important for pastors to have that just i'm not coming to god's word as a teacher but as a student, teach me. Yes? I just wondered, as a um, pastor, once you had reset yourself, how did you then reset everyone's expectations of you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I work for Joel Beakey. And uh, those of you who have seen the number of books he writes, <laughs> he's a very productive man. But um, he's very understanding. And... So I didn't, I didn't have a problem at work. Um, I had to say no to a lot of travel, obviously with my uh, blood clotting problems. So far, I have not had any complaints about that. I suppose having a physical ailment is, is easier to point to and, and use as an excuse. You can't really argue against that. Um, it wasn't a problem with my wife because she'd been saying it for years. 
But I think it's to have that conversation. Um, so yeah, often people will find that, that that's a terrifying thing to a lot of people, letting people down. Um, but sometimes our refusal to say no to people is actually a no to God. So no, I will, I'm not saying no to you so I can please you, keep you happy. But at the same time, I'm saying no to God's fellowship, communion, nearness, um, his work in me. And I think when we try and face ourselves with that choice, it, it makes it a little bit easier. And I think it's to, it's to do it gradually maybe as well. Uh, you know, maybe not a totally radical change. And also to try and maybe view it temporarily. So sometimes just so burned out, we need to stop things, even good things, for a while. They say, look, I need a time out. I need a few months. I need a year. And I'm going to take stock at the end of the year. And that doesn't mean at the end of the year you're straight back in again. But like with pastors, I'll often just, we'll talk about graduated return. And you just keep adding until you reach your limit rather than straight back in and then you're having to chop things off again. So the book goes into how to say no a little bit. And uh, my wife's book, Refresh, is written from a female perspective and talks about her own experiences with depression. Yeah. Ministry, but also the realms of life. Yep. It is, again, it is a, fundamentally a theological problem about who is sovereign. And again, I've met a lot of people who are, you know, sovereign grace to the core, they would say, and yet, you know, they are totally controlling in their lives. And, and you know, to the extent of manipulative and coercive. And I would say, you know, a study of the sovereignty of God that really gets into, into, into practicalities. Because I think that's often the problem. The theology can be there, but it's not been connected with everyday life. So the conversation about how can we reflect the sovereignty of God in our lives better? Because if somebody looked at you, pastor, and what would, they, what, would they, what would their impression be? Would their impression be, that's a pastor who trusts in the sovereignty of God, or that's a pastor who thinks he's sovereign himself? And so I think it's very important for pastors to challenge themselves, to give up. You know, if you really believe in the sovereignty of God, you would give up. You would hand over. You would trust God and others who have God in their lives to implement and act. And I think it's a real test of whether our belief in the sovereignty of God is merely theoretical or if it really is a heart spiritual conviction. But again, you're probably dealing with somebody who's built a habit over a very long period of time and would need accountability probably from a superior so it's very hard for somebody underneath to come alongside in that way. Uh, maybe a peer or somebody that he is accountable to. And it's for his own good as well, or her own good. 
It's a miserable way to live. Anyone else? Is it coffee time? Okay, let's go and have a break then, won't we? Let me pray. Great God of rest. We thank you that today we can enter into your rest. That we can hear your wonderful invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. For your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Lord, help us truly to enter into the fullness of that. Help us to live grace-paced lives and to tap into the abundance of grace that often lies unused in our lives. Help us to be different, to be counter-cultural, to show that we have a counter-cultural God who delights to commune with his children, to enjoy them, to receive them, to hear them and speak to them. Help us to be still and know that you are God. In Jesus' name, amen.